Community Radio. It's about real people. Not sound bites. Not more talking heads. Not on this show. Interchange is a community access media forum fostering unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Conversations that challenge the ways we perceive the world around us. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Tonight, we're going to talk about forest management and logging with the Indiana State Forester, John Seifert. Uh, John Seifert's employment with the Division of Forestry began in 2005 when he was hired as State Forester and Director of the Division of Forestry. Previously, he served as Extension Research Forester for Purdue University from 1979 to 2005, where he did applied research in plantation and natural stand management. He oversees certification of state and private forest lands under the North American and International Sustainability Green Standards and is, an, and is active with the Indiana Tree Farm Program, the Indiana Woodland Owners Association, the Indiana Hardwood Lumbermen's Association, and the Indiana Forest Industry Council. Thanks for being with us tonight on Interchange, John. You're welcome. So we're here to discuss the logging of trees in our state forests. Primarily, there's uh, there's a recent uproar, and there's been a long-standing uproar uh, over this particular issue. Uh, but recently, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the logging in Yellowwood. WFHB has done some interviews with residents who live on the borders of the forest, and there is real concern there. Uh, if let me, let me, too, ask you if you have questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can call us at 812-323-1200 or email us at interchange at wfhb.org. Again, call us at 812-323-1200 or email at interchange at wfhb.org. We'll take those calls off the air, and I will uh, respond to them, or we'll ask uh, John Sievert to respond to them uh, through this conversation. So, let's start out with Yellowwood. Uh, what's going on in Yellowwood State Forest, John? Um, nothing unique that we haven't been doing for 100 years. So, we're logging there, though. That's, that's what's going on right now. What's, what's, what are people uh, upset about right now? I guess if you get down to it, a lot of people have bought land that adjoins the state forest and uh, didn't think those trees would be harvested in their lifetime and come to find out that, yes, all of not all, but a majority of Yellowwood State Forest is an actively managed forest and has been since we acquired it. When when was that forest acquired? Oh boy, it's been. That's a good question. I'd say most of a, a lot, significant amount of our land was acquired in the fifties and sixties. Oh, okay, was there a particular program that happened at that point? No, uh, we've been acquiring land little bit by little bit for forty, fifty years. I mean, actually, the Division of Forestry has been in the business for almost a hundred years. Well, that's a long time. Was there a particular uh, focus that the Division of Forestry was set up to, to do? Was there a particular uh, method or, or a policy that it was set out to enact at the time? Yes, when we were enabling legislation uh, set out that what we would be doing, and that is essentially manage the forest for commodities, which would be trees, for wildlife management, for water quality control, and ultimately recreation was part of that uh, enabling legislation as well. What would you say is your primary goal at the Division of Forestry there? What, uh, if you had a, a list one, two, three, maybe what, what are your, what are your um, objectives? Our objectives are, are to sustain the forest and keep it healthy. That's Pretty it. Simple. I mean, we provide a lot of other 
venues, obviously, besides just the trees, we provide recreation, we provide wildlife habitat, uh, we provide, you know, aesthetics, all of those things as part of our mission. So uh, our primary issue, as, as we noted at the beginning, was the, the issue of logging in Yellowwood. But as you, as you know, logging's been going on for a long time, and uh, obviously not just in Yellowwood. There are how many, 13? 13 state 13 forests. 13 state forests and logging in all of them? Uh, yes. And that's all, has that been consistent throughout the history of this particular program, or have, have certain forests been more heavily logged than others? Or um, Part of, as a profession, we look at the forest holistically, and then we look at it, you know, smaller parcels. And so some of the forests were acquired as very young forests, and they obviously had very little manipulation, so to speak, we were just letting them grow. Others came on had more mature timber, and they obviously had some active management in them. Okay. Uh, let, me, let me do this real quick, actually, since we've had some, like I said, some interest in the local newspapers and on here on FHB as well. Let me read a little bit from an HT article uh, by John Blau from August 10, 2014. Um, this says, uh, John Seifert, the state forester with the DNR, said, tracking the Indiana bat, and this is again a, a particular issue of, of again forest management or trying to manage the, the particular uh, wildlife that is that may be in the state forest as well. Uh, tracking the Indiana bat is f- a fluid situation. The area off of Sewell Road on the eastern edge of Monroe County was only under restriction because foresters were being cautious until they could narrow down where reproducing females were located. Seaford said there are no female bats within 2.5 miles of the area currently being logged. And trees will grow back, Seaford said. Logging has been happening for centuries, as, as you had just told us. Many residents who live near the forest uh, but haven't been alive long enough to know don't know that many of the forests they live in were at one point cleared. Seifert would argue that it's better for the DNR to log under their jurisdiction and have the state reap the financial benefits than let loggers seek out private lands where there is little control. All right, so um, a couple of issues there, right? Right off the bat, we have one, which is uh, trying to protect particular species of animal in the forest as well. Um, Are there, as this notes, the the Indiana bat is a particular issue. What what has been the issue with that? the Sorry. Indiana bat is is a federally endangered species, mm-hmm. so it has particular uh, protections, and we have to protect its habitat as well as provide future habitat for it. And one of the things uh, that we've had discussions with the Fish and Wildlife Service is how do we protect the species? And one of the things that they recommended was there's a restriction f- from a known site so there could be a maternity colony and that's a a cluster that could be a dead tree it could be a den tree where there's multiple females that are raising pups once we know that location then we have a offset so to speak we don't harvest within that zone because those bats can actually fly two and a half miles in some cases maybe five miles depending would you do you have any sense of how the actual logging process affects the, the that particular animal or any anim, animals uh, that would be disturbed by the process itself versus the actual remo- removal of trees? Yeah, we put in place about two thousand six, two thousand seven, a, a, a hundred year research project, and one of those issues we were addressing pretty quickly was the impacts of our management on species of concern, and obviously the Indiana bat was one of those. So we've been working with a number of universities of all state, Indiana State, Purdue, that who are doing most of the research for us. 
So that that kind of pro- obviously that kind of project is going to take some time. But uh, one of the the issues I suppose is how do the impacts? Like I assume you don't stop doing the things you're doing in order to study impacts. So you're waiting for a particular amount of time to then be able to go back and retrospectively look at what's happened. In this case, with this particular species, because it's already listed as as, as endangered, we do have to be very careful. We're not waiting for another 20 years of data. We're actually collecting it on site. We have acoustic surveys where we actually can go out and find the bats, find mm-hmm. the maternity colonies, see where they're, they're going. Um, some of the research folks are um, actually putting transmitters on these bats and following to, to location. So that's an active program we've been doing, uh, and we continue to do it. Mm-hmm. Are there other particular species that you have to be careful for? The other one we're concerned about right now is, is the northern long-eared bat. It's has the potential to be listed. Uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service has uh, said that in, I think it's April of 2015, they will determine whether that species also becomes a, a, a listed species. Hmm. So uh, another point was made in that particular article is this this um, situation of public versus private uh, forests or private lands owned and then logged and the idea of protection uh, on either of those places. So the, the sense that if it's a privately logged uh, part of land that you're you're not going to have the same kind of protections that the the DNR might provide. Well, that I I read that quote and it was a little bit of out of context. So I want to clarify that. Sure. I mean, at least for from the state's perspective, we have a number of environmental protocols we go through. And lots of those are wildlife issues, threatened and endangered species, water quality issues, and all of those things are monitored on site as the harvest is going on. Some of them are followed up with third party audits after the fact to make sure that we're in compliance with our own standards. And again, you gotta keep in mind when you've got a dynamic situation of harvesting and you work with individuals, there's a lot of give and take. And then you have landowners who may have a different opinion of how you should be doing things as well. Mm-hmm. The the point though in terms of um, private versus pub versus public, mm-hmm. I find an interesting one simply because of the stats on the amount of land in in question, right? So the the vast majority of forest in Indiana is privately held. Is that correct? Correct. And to the tune of something like eighty six percent. I'd say you're pretty close. Uh, so that means of that of what's left, eighty fourteen or so percent, that's public land, public forest, right. that you you through the division manage. Correct. It could be both federal as well as state lands. Oh, okay. Do yes, you know the the distinction there? Uh, there's a number of agencies that own land under the federal. There's the Forest Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Corps of Engineers, mm-hmm. uh, military bases, and then you have state agencies like us, which would be DNR, mm-hmm. particularly is the, the largest uh, land holding group. Okay, uh, let me. You mentioned third party audits. Can you tell me a little bit about that process? Uh, we we knew that when we were going to change the way we were managing the forest, that we would have to have someone looking over our shoulder that the public knew wasn't in house. So we went out and aggressively sought third-party certification. And that uh, you alluded to that early on, that we have both a international and domestic third-party certification. Every year in the fall, a team comes in from outside of Indiana, and they audit us for compliance with all of our standards, as well as state and federal laws. Are there particular organizations you work with? Uh, the two that, really, there's only two uh, certification groups. The one is called the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, and the other one is the Forest Stewardship Council. And they're really the two uh, organizations that have either North American uh, certification standards or, in the case of FSC, international certification standards. Now, I, I had here, I did look this up, the, there's an issue with that particular 
initiative, the Sustainable Forestry Initiative, I think is what you said, correct? Correct. Yeah. And these are just things I found online there, there, and you can certainly check this or, or correct me if this is incorrect, but I found this at, I think it's a, a Forest Stewardship Council, mm-hmm. yeah, who calls the uh, this particular certification a phony logging industry eco-certification funded by Weyerhaeuser Plum Creek and International Paper, Sierra Pacific, and U.S logging companies that um, which uh, would trouble that troubles that would trouble our uh, interest wouldn't it that that particular standard is called the SFI that's not the FSC the FSC yes FS the SFI the sustainable forest initiative Mm -hmm. was originally founded by industry it has now evolved to be a much more inclusive group uh, sort of, when you look at the two certification standards, there's not a lot of difference anymore because they, they're really competing in a marketplace. These two, these two standards? Yes, exactly. Okay, so the standards themselves are competing to do the work of giving you a certification? Uh, well, actually, these grading groups. us against standards that have been established. Who establishes these standards? There's a board of directors for both organizations and they establish standards as the FSC standard is actually housed over in Germany and the SFI is a US based one. Okay, so the question really and this is a this is one that I I made a note earlier when we were talking about uh, public versus private again one of the the interesting dilemmas here I think in terms of trying to understand these issues is that in the public one I'll, I'll be the first to admit it I don't know much about forestry and I don't know much about uh, state forests but when we start talking about these uh, divisions that manage these things and then we start trying to understand how they're regulated or how they do their business and then how, who like we say are third party auditors right and then we discover the the sort of difficulty when when we see that the people People involved in the auditing are also industry members on some level. They may not all may not all be logging industry members, but many of them do have these particular relationships. Um, really, the auditing team is not usually part of the actual certification group. They hire an independent auditors, so there is another disconnect there that keeps that issue separate. But I, I think that all of us, uh, again, this, uh, this I think is a term that we worry about in Congress even, right? So we have right now probably very little trust in our government as a, uh, on the whole. Um, and one of the things uh, I think I recently saw was not only is uh, you know Congress approval rating at something like twelve percent across the board, Democrat Republican, it doesn't matter. Uh, but the the also there also was a recent report out, and I think. I, I don't remember who who said it, but it was something like 79% of people believe that there is serious corruption in government. Mm-hmm. And all we've been seeing is this back and forth between um, lobbyists and industry, industry and lobbyists, and then government, industry, lobby, gov- a sort of circle of, of these these relationships. So something like this begs begs that question as well, obviously, as, as these outside groups can also be influenced by that kind of situation. See, that's why we, we, we kept both certification standards, because you have an industry standard, which is the SFI, which was formed by the industry itself, and then you have the FSC, which is, was formed by the environmental community. So we meet both standards. So that kept us, uh, gave us the ability to answer the question you just posed. Okay. Uh, let me let me actually going back to the article that Blau wrote. Mm-hmm. There was um, 
It was, uh, there was an, also a letter to the editor that was in the HT from a, a resident in Nashville, uh, Kathy Roundtree is her name. She, th this was posted uh, in the HT online but appeared in the paper as well. Uh, I would like to thank the Herald Times for John Blau's August 10 article on logging in Yellowwood Forest. As another Yellowwood neighbor, I share the concerns of others about the effects of logging on the forest those who use public lands recreationally and those of us who are fortunate enough to fortunate enough to live nearby in trying to understand this issue i've talked to dnr foresters and representatives of the indiana forest alliance all seem to be genuinely working to care for and advocate for public lands mr blau's article well describes the divergent claims of perspectives and perspectives regarding the benefits and harms of logging on public lands it would be even more helpful to have had a discussion and analysis of these disagreements how do logged sites appear over time how much of the revenue for forest management comes from logging does this logging revenue affect management practices what are other side effects and costs of logging um, on Scarce O'Fat Ridge, it's a, an interesting name, um, referenced in the Blau article, invasive stilt grass is rampant on logging roads and log clearings, choking out native plants and changing habitat. So, uh, Kathy Roundtree, uh, thanks, and that was from the HT, and she points out several questions that are of interest right there. Um, one in particular, uh, how much of the revenue for, for forest management comes from the logging practice? About, uh, about a third of our revenue does. And is there a particular um, fund that goes into? Is that operating budget or where it do, where goes it into? Go? Without getting too technical, it's called our dedicated fund, and in our dedicated fund comes our timber revenue, our recreational revenue, our nursery ceiling revenue, anything that we we get from the resource. Now, this question is interesting. Does the logging revenue affect management practices? I, I'm going to assume, or uh, I hope I don't uh, uh, take this wrong, Kathy, but I assume that means if you are managing for logging practices, uh, then are you, does that change how you do the job? Let me, uh, let me explain how we do this. Yeah, go. Uh, you know, I'm obviously the state forester, but I really do not dictate how the foresters on the ground make decisions on what stands get harvested and how they harvest them. This is a professional decision. There's some science here, obviously, and there's some experience. And, mm -hmm. and so every one of these sales, these individual foresters make decisions. They write a management plan, and that plan gets posted. It gets reviewed by at least two other people before any activities happen. Great. Um, Okay, so we have foresters on the ground now who are also then making these decisions. These are, um, um, I guess, people in the in the division who have the same kind of pedigree as you do yourself, or some some kind. Many of them have multiple degrees. We have a number of folks who have both forestry and wildlife degrees that are on the ground. Okay, uh, are there particular programs that that put out foresters? Uh, I'm not sure, like academic programs. Yes, there is. Uh, usually, there's a, probably one per state. In this state here, it's Purdue University. Purdue. Uh, are there particular style? I mean, uh, again, in terms of academic practice, are there is there a particular style of forestry that Purdue tends to work? I mean, in difference to other state organizations that have these same these same kind of academic bodies. I've watched the profession evolve over the years from purely just let's cut trees to where we're way more concerned now about the environment. Mm -hmm as a holistic approach. So we look at, and that what's, that's what's happened at Purdue as well. You've, you have students taking a lot more environmental classes, a lot more ecosystem classes to understand the impacts of, of that forest and the big picture, so to speak. 
Okay. Um, we need to take a break right now. Uh, this is Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange. We've been talking with John Seifert, who is the director of the Division of Forestry, uh, the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Oh, excuse me. That's not correct. No, that is correct. Sorry. Thank you. Um, and we'll be back in a little bit. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and we're joined tonight by Jack, oh, excuse me, John Seifert, Indiana State Forester. We've been talking about forest management practices and the increase in logging in state forests, in particular Yellowwood uh, State Forest. Um, and we stopped uh, at the last uh, last break. We stopped when we were talking about how how things are decided. Uh, who who decides to to cut particular. Um, stands of forest and, and that these decisions are made by foresters on the ground. Um, but a, a question I, I think that, uh, that I had come in over uh, the telephone was the increase in logging practices. This is obviously another of the big issues here. And, and there has been a marked increase in logging from, say, 2001, where the gross revenue of uh, of logging was something around six hundred thousand, a little short of six hundred thousand dollars, according to this thing I'm looking at here. I understand? And uh, this uh, this has risen to something like two point seven million dollars in gross revenue for 2012. Um, so I guess we should address that. Why the drastic increase? If that's a drastic increase, the board feet go from two million to about fourteen million. That's correct. The question uh, you pose is a good one, and we need to spend a little time on it. Mm -hmm. the, uh, when I first became director, we, I spent a lot of time with the foresters in the field, and uh, they were pretty adamant telling me that, Jack, we need to increase the harvesting level because there's a lot of mortality going in the forest. The forest is overstocked, and I don't want to get too technical, meaning it's sort of like a garden. There's a point where you can only grow so many stems per acre, and then mm -hmm. mortality starts to pick up, insect disease issues become uh, part of it. And, and good case in point, just the last two years when the droughts came about, our mortality is horrendous now in some of our uh, state forests because those species were either too tight, so to speak, too many per acre, they were too old, uh, or they were off-site, off so to speak. Okay, so your, 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 your contention here is that due to uh, environmental factors of the the actual uh, health of the trees as as you saw it or the DNR uh, and the group of foresters uh, believe that the health itself required a much greater uh, reduction of tree. Actually when you think about it make it simplistic it's kind of like you and me there there's a point where you become mature mm -hmm. and then things start changing. <laughs> I'm sure. And, uh, and what the great thing about a forest is, is it's renewable. So when you decide or the forest ages to a point where mortality or potential issues come about, uh, there's new trees that are taking its place. So it's, it's one of the beauties of a renewable resource. Well, how do we define forest health then? Or, or when we talk about things like maturity of trees and, and assessing the health of the forest, what's, what's the best way that happens? Or what, which way do we practice it here in Indiana through the Division of Forestry? I don't think there's any one way. We look at a lot of variables. We look at, obviously, individual trees because we know some species live longer than others. If that particular stand is, let's say, uh, a black oak stand that's already 120 years of age, we know through the science, through our inventories, that there will be mortality. So it's a matter of do you capture the mortality before it happens, so to speak, and sell it, or do you let it go to the ground? 
So the the tree, in a sense, okay, so as I'm not a forester, nor a lumber expert, nor anything like that, my question is one that I think is perhaps commonsensical in my, my thinking in terms of how the world happens in nature. So a tree gets old and dies. And in the forest, if it dies, it's uh, perhaps it falls over, perhaps the wind blows it over, who knows what happens, uh, but it becomes a dead tree and then it falls down and it serves certain purposes in, in an ecological environment. So what what's wrong with leaving that stuff alone? Nothing's wrong with leaving it alone. I mean, obviously, if that was your desire, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. But from a biological standpoint, we think managing it, controlling the density, controlling the species mix, making sure stands are multiple species so that you don't have a catastrophic event that wipes them all out is a good approach. And it's one that's been practiced not only in the United States, but in Europe for hundreds of years. Well, what's, uh, I know that, as you said, there is some variability in terms of maturity, but uh, is there a, a, a sense of what maturity is in terms of forest management by the, the Division of Forestry? Or like we would say, that's a tree that's old enough now that we want to cut it. I'd like to digress just a little bit sure. and talk about people are used to seeing what happens in the West Coast and they think about old growth forests and big trees that live to be 2,000 years of age mm-hmm. because of what, that's what they've seen in Redwood and Sequoias. And that's not a system. Every part of the country has a unique ecosystem. And that kind of ecosystem will not exist because those species aren't here. Sure. So when we look at a forest here in Indiana, we know that some species could potentially live in excess of 200 years of age. Uh, that's generally not a solid stand. You'll have individual stems. But collectively, when we start getting over 100 to 125 years of age, we know we're going to have issues with mortality and, and, and regeneration because we're always looking at how do you regenerate the next forest. That's in terms, too, uh, we've talked plenty about uh, the sense that we're cutting a tree down and, and selling it. It's serving a purpose as a resource uh, to to uh, bring money to the state and their particular uh, uses in, in your office as well. If that is, again, I think it's the question Kathy asked, you know, if there is a managed standard for timber health that is also a standard for um, uh, the sort of economic creation of the practice to say we, we have an economic practice here as much as a forest health practice. We really don't have an economic practice. Ours is strictly a forest health practice. So the, the logging is entirely for forest health? Correct. Okay. Because we get accused of, in many cases, of s- harvesting trees for, for, not, for value, but then uh, we are also compared to the private sector who typically gets more per, bur- per board foot than we do. And that's be- because we are looking at it long term. We're willing to sell thin stands that some individual stems really don't pay their way out of the forest. What's the process of selling now? You, I, I read somewhere that you're, you're doing selective uh, tree removal as well as something, um, a smaller kind of regeneration right. stand that was that's like a, a baby clear cut or a minor clear cut? Correct. We, probably about 95%, maybe 97% of our harvesting method is single tree selection. And what that means is we'll pick individual trees here, tree there. Uh, Keep in mind that on a, an acre basis, you may have anywhere from 50 to 70 trees per acre that are bigger than 12 inches in diameter. And so you know, when you have that many stems there, you have a lot of opportunity to, as I say, thin the garden, enhance the garden, whatever. 
So the the tree, uh, the opportunity to uh, to to stem the garden is that what did you thin say? The, the thin, thin. thin, thin the stem. Okay. <laughs> so that is uh, again uh, because you think that particular stand could use the thinning. Absolutely. And in order, and when it gets thinned, what's the benefit of that? What you're doing, it's all about sunlight. I mean, you've only got forty three thousand five hundred sixty square feet in an acre. So how do you concentrate sunlight into the spe- to the stems, whether they're shrubs, wildlife? hickory, whatever, onto what we consider our, our future stand. Mm-hmm. But why, why manage it in that sense? Uh, again, I, I know you talked drought earlier right. and the sense that uh, the natural cycle of the tree that grows and then the tree that dies uh, ha- obviously understands sunlight as well. What's, what's the purpose of a forest management in that sense? That Again, the forest will do what it does, right? And so you're saying we're going to avoid certain issues if we if we cut a, a stem here and let some we light can, in? Can, we can control some issues. Some issues, obviously, we can't. We can't control drought, mm-hmm. but we can control competition. We can control insect and diseases if they're already impacting the stand. And we know that by our data that certain species will age out. So when we go to single tree selection, it's what's readily accepted by most citizens because the reality is if you look at our harvest after 10 years, you really don't even notice it because unless you see a stump, the canopy's closed in, it's already filled in. The thing that usually excites people is, is what we call the group selection openings or the old clear cuts. And that's probably why we do it because no one on the private sector is willing to do it because it's got huge aesthetic problems. But when you look at it from a regeneration standpoint and from a wildlife perspective, there's a whole another group of species and issues that we address with that system. Yeah, so the, the problem of that, that particular perspective, as far as I can tell, is that regeneration and wildlife brought into a clear-cut space is, um, is already viable in other places, that there's lots of that kind of wildlife, lots of that kind of regeneration naturally and across the state's 86% of private forest, and as well as natural uh, you know, activities that, that, you know, ice storms that, that cause these kinds of things as well, or uh, that the question is, those kinds of wildlife aren't as necessary to protect or to create the habitat for as the ones that would be as found in what, what you were calling old growth or, or the more mature forests. I would disagree <laughs> strongly. <laughs> well, okay. And the reason is because the science is behind us. The, the, the type of habitat that we really need now for, for a diversity standpoint is those openings because that private land ownership is all small ownerships who don't want to not have a harvest in the next 10 or 15 years. So when you make an opening, you're done. You're done in your lifetime. It's something that we think we can provide that because we, we, we're, we're looking at it long term. So really, those openings and that young forest, you can ask any wildlife group who understands the system will tell you, we need more openings. And the openings will provide... Oh, new trees. They'll provide uh, new trees. And you, you, you have a whole host of wildlife species, whether they're neotropical songbirds. Mm-hmm. Even, even the bats that we're finding now are coming to these sites because why? Sunlight drives the system. Mm-hmm. You have insects there. If you're in a closed canopy forest, you're not getting much sunlight down past the canopy. You have very low diversity in many cases, very limited amounts of food sources for a lot of these species. So the question that I think people keep uh, responding to in this particular situation is that 
uh, the, the pr- that primarily there aren't that many uh, forest spaces like that we're, what we're talking about in terms of uh, old growth or, again, mature stands where you will have that wildlife that is available there, the, the, the type of life that can grow there, that's, that's what's actually quite scarce. And pr- promoting some other kind of what would seem to be pretty uh, a viable and available opportunity for that, another kind of wildlife is cutting out uh, a scarcity rather than promoting something in particular that, that we might want. Again, I think that's a misconception that's not founded in science because, again, we manage based on science. Mm-hmm. Again, the reality is the species that you would assume would be in an older forest are not threatened and endangered. They're not unique. In many cases, all those species we find in our single-tree harvested forest. Okay, one, uh, one question um, uh, I had, uh, again, about single-tree harvesting is how that happens in forests that are hard to get to, right? So these are, these are um, how do we get to these, these places and, and cut down single trees or, or multiple trees within an acre? Um, obviously, it's d- different now than it was 50 years ago when we used uh, mules and whatever. Now mm-hmm. we use very large equipment, unfortunately, because time is money. Did we use mules 50 years ago, John? <laughs> we used a lot of horses and a okay. lot of mules. 50 years ago, 1964, I think the Wilderness Preservation Act was Believe it or 1964. not, there was still people logging with that equipment. Oh, I believe you. I believe you. So, But now we don't. We use large, very large, large equipment. equipment. Mm-hmm. To get large. into those stands that are, that, are self, uh, that are selected by the division, you got to find a way to get there. Are these, do you have to make roads? You, what's, what's the process? Normally, believe it or not, at least in Yellowwood, which you're sort of focused on in Margaret Monroe, mm-hmm. uh, near and dear to this audience, uh, almost all of that land at one time was, was farmed. And almost all those ridge tops were farm fields or pasture fields. So they already had roads there. In many cases, we're just opening roads up that were there. Obviously, we do make new roads. I don't want anybody to think we don't. But the reality is if you go into an old site like us, we have, and you see a, a, a bank that's three feet tall, you know that was an old road. So, yes, we go in, open those roads back up. In some cases, we gravel them. And one of the, one of the benefits of that, if you're, if you're a hiker, is that you now have access to a a fairly easy path. Hmm. So let me let me come back to a question about the um, interior forest, or what uh, I guess is interior mature forest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you said, or at least I think we were talking about the differences between private forestry or the uh, the the private landowner who doesn't want to f- to harvest, but maybe. Um, what, what are they doing with their land primarily if they're not looking to, to, to clear-cut or to, to sell off land uh, trees? Most of the data that, uh, when it's asked that question to a private landowner, they're using it for aesthetics, for wildlife viewing, and just to get out of the city. <laughs> it, it is. It, it's remarkable. Timber management is way down on their priority list, although they know at some point they will sell timber. But really, it's, it's all of those intrinsic values that people want to value. Hmm. The, okay, so the question then would be that it's assumed then that there is a plausibly interior mature forest in the hands of private owners? Most of the private land in Indiana is probably going to be less than 100 acres uh, on average usually. Uh, that's what makes us in state and federal ownership quite unique because we have large blocks and we can manage entire systems. And that's, a, that's, that's a great for us mm-hmm. because... When you have a 20,000-acre block, not, it's not all complete. You have a unique opportunity that's not in a private sector 
and you have private sector people who have they may have a hundred different reasons that they want to do things so there's there's obviously some diversity there as well. Well, uh, um, again, check me, uh, check my stats here. The, but I think that there was um, the the actual logging statistics for the state. Then uh, the majority of it does obviously come from private, Correct. privately held land, and these are also still these small timber farmers who are selling one tree, ten trees, fifteen. How many? Yeah, trees normally there'd be there's sort of a, a threshold that you have to get, and it's it's more than a few trees unless they're really unique trees. Mm-hmm. You may have to be in the hundreds and maybe multiple hundreds to have a good sale. What do you mean by unique tree? Well, you could have a situation where you have one walnut tree that's 30 inches of diameter. It's beautiful. You might have an individual maybe willing to come in and buy that tree, but that's an exception. Okay. Um, so uh, <clears throat> you mentioned a sustained or a larger size of, of, of territory. I read something in this, uh, in this uh, information about forest fragmentation. Can Correct. you talk a little bit about that? I'm glad you brought that up because people don't realize, especially from an environmental standpoint, uh, forest fragmentation is what you see in the landscape where you have agriculture, forest, urbanization. And, and, and a good example is if you had a 100 to 200 acre parcel, it now gets split up with multiple owners who now stick houses in the middle of it. That forest is still there so technically, but it's now a much different forest than it was before. Okay. Um, now, let me let me step back before we have to go to break. I'm going to take a quick look at this. We talked about um, species, I guess, the, the change in how uh, there are species that come in with clear-cut or mm-hmm. things of that nature. I am looking at a, a letter written by uh, Timothy Brothers, who's in the Department of Geography at uh, IUPUI, okay. who is his associate professor. Uh, he says that, and this is the Indiana Forest Alliance, uh, um, asked him to, to comment on these things. He's an associate professor and past chair of the Department of Geography. His research, research, my research there has focused on human-caused vegetation change in Indiana and the Caribbean. The Alliance became aware of my work through two papers. 28 years of research, plant invasions in Indiana. Uh, a large fraction of Indiana's flora is now composed of alien plant species, although most of these are either cultivated or become weeds only in open croplands, pastures, and other sunny situations. A growing number of uh, are apparently capable of invading and surviving in forests, especially if these are disturbed either naturally or by people. Some of these have been around a long time, for example, multiflora rose, winter creeper, Japanese honeysuckle, and other Asian honeysuckles. Others, such as garlic mustard, Japanese stiltgrass, as Kathy mentioned, are newer. The plants, These plants and others are sure to come in an area of increasing global interchange and are common in Indiana farm woodlots. They are kept from invading more natural forests, mainly by dense shade, undisturbed forest floor, and lack of access from outside. So in one hand, we have now the, this, this understanding that the old forest or mature forest actually protects against these invasive species. That's what he's saying there, right? There's some truth to that. Again, it depends on how much the exposure it's had. Uh, there's no question we've got invasives that happened at the turn of the century from the European continent. Now we're seeing quite a number of them coming from the Asian continent. And that's just the reality. I mean, the forest survived. I think there's going to be a period of time where this is all going to shake out. I think we're going to we're going to do the best we can to manage some of those evasives, those that we think are very aggressive. And still grass is one you brought up. Uh, we're actively trying to control it right now. Uh, we got to go to a break. Uh, this is Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and tonight we're talking with John Seifert, Indiana State Forester. We'll be back in a break in a minute. Excuse me.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm, and I'm joined tonight by State Forester Jack. John Seifert. I've been calling him Jack. Sometimes I do. I'm sorry. Um, we've been talking about trees, unsurprisingly, specifically the practice of commercial logging in state forests. Um, we talked a little bit about how there are invasive species issues uh, with, with some clear-cutting issues or removing some of the mature forest uh, and allowing some of those invasive species to to take hold, um, but you know this this whole sort of idea of ecological management is a difficult one to understand, as there are obviously multiple perspectives on how to do it and and what what it serves. Um, um, I think that the, a question that I, that as 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 you prepare for a, for a program like this in particular, what you find out is that it does tend to seem political frequently, or you have a particular political party in office that serves particular interests, and then another one comes in and it serves those particular interests. Now, it's not hard to see, uh, obviously we talked about the rise in in the board feet and the and the the difference in 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 dollars that are coming in to due to logging, and it was um, it was Mitch Daniels, <clears throat> I think, in particular, who who made some particular changes too in the way that the the, the DNR or the forestry division in particular f- uh, funded itself. Uh, so first, can you tell us a little bit about what what Mitch Daniels did that changed how you uh, fund the the forestry division? Believe it or not, <laughs> he never told us what to do. Again, I go back to my early discussion when I when I came on, I went to our foresters and said, you know, what do we need to do, and and what how do I get help you get there? And and essentially, the, our foresters in the field were telling me this is what we should do. But but again, it was never a political issue. This was really about if think about it. If you're a forester, it's in your best interest to manage this forest sustainably. So we're not going to go out there and try to rape and pillage it for the value of it and then know it's going to be gone. It just, it's just counterintuitive to me. Right. I, I have a, a document here that I was looking at earlier and trying to understand, and, it, and when I keep um, referring to um, mature forests and things like this, it's it's from this, this piece of... Um, um, I'd like to tell you where I got it from. <laughs> it's, uh, it's from, uh, I think it was from Ohio, the Shawnee State Forest in okay. particular, but it was an Ohio study uh, that was done. And, and it's, it's really pretty interesting because it kind of tries to uh, help und- help the, the, the reader and I think the executive. I think this is from the executive summary, which I like because, you know, you don't have to read the rest of it, which is nice that your executives just look at the, the first few pages of your report. But here it talks about industrial forestry, which they call sil- silviculture, silviculture, right? So you tell us a little bit about silviculture? I mean, silviculture really is just a, a specially term in, the, in forestry of managing the forest. Managed toward timber production is what this particular document says. Is you that could, true? You could slant it that way. I think we, it's evolved since that time. In what ways? I, again, we, we go back to looking at it holistically. We look at the whole entire system. It, we, you know, it's sort of the issue of the forest for the trees kind of concept. Sure. So there is a, a, a turn towards forest health and an ecological perspective. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, and in, in that sense, uh, what are the key ecological issues that you're concerned with at, uh, at the Division of Forestry? Uh, we're really, we want to make sure we have a diverse habitat because usually we have a diverse habitat that could be age, it could be species. You have a more diverse flora and fauna component, and that's our goal. And that means different age classes, and really for us, as long as we can keep the forest in the forest, so to speak, uh, we're going to be much better off long term. 
The uh, the question uh, too for me, I think at this point is not so much. Um, well, it may uh, may be a part of it, the forest species as well. But the fact of what trees do as their as their machinery, what's their their primary activity as as um, plant species? Um, Take in sun, carbohydrates, and create <laughs> cellulose. Right. So, but we also are a part of this natural environment where we breathe out carbon dioxide, and 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 they process this particular thing like all plants do, and they release oxygen and and that's how we breathe and things of that nature. So there is clearly a, um, an ecological perspective to how trees do the jobs they do. They're not just stands of forest for us to, to make use of. But in some sense, as a director or uh, the state forester, it's, you have multiple things that you manage. You don't say necessarily, I just need to manage tree health. You, you manage forest health. The forest is a large thing that then can be determined to be for... Uh, um, recreation mm-hmm. for timber use, et cetera. Right. But the question at this point in time, and I think, and uh, you and I had mentioned in an email too, that this there's this idea that, uh, that it's a renewable resource, but it's a renewable resource over time, Correct. right? That time, it takes some time for things to grow, right? And trees right. in particular, I, I remember doing landscape and the question that you do in landscape, when's the best time to plant a tree? It's 10 years ago. Right, so this is the issue, right? How long it takes for trees to grow to do the work they do? Correct. Right. So, uh, so this brings me to, to carbon sequestration, and uh, a lot of the the science that I w- was looking at in preparation for the show have to do with this idea that even even old uh, trees that they grow faster um, and that they actually do more uh, sequestering of carbon. That uh, and so in a sense, is this uh, counterintuitive to even the practice of cutting larger trees? I would look back and say, again, you're looking at an acre basis. So whether you have one tree that covers an acre or you have 500, as long as the acre is completely consumed with a photosynthesis sort of machine, the the leaves, you should be absorbing CO2 and converting it to a carbon-based plant matter. Uh, I'd like to be able to to question this particular science. I I certainly can't. The The thing that I looked at primarily was about the the actual volume of sequestration that that happens when the tree is older, more mature, and has has a certain size level to it that it's it's far outweighs any of these lower uh, bush or small tree sequestration issues. So, okay, let me help you here. Sure. Um, again, as a tree gets, there's a certain point in that tree's age where it will then start to decay. Mm-hmm. So whether you know that could be dependent on species. So let's take a black oak. You might have a black oak that might make 28 inches in diameter on a ridge top, and then it's going to start declining. At that point, is it a net producer of carbon or is it a, a sink? And I would argue as that tree rots, because it's going to rot internally, you don't realize it, you may not be graining as much net as you think. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I'm, I'm going to read this just so I can uh, sure. say that I read a piece of science here on, on the program. So this is a letter um, uh, that came from the, uh, the journal Nature from, <laughs> it looks like, uh, uh, I don't have a date here. Um, oh, well, we'll pass on from now. I'll, I'll tell you what it is and we can all look it up later. Rate of tree carbon accumulation increases continuously with tree size. And this is just from the, the beginning of the, the paper. Uh, large old trees do not act simply as s- s- senescent. 
senescence. Thank you. Carbon reservoirs, but actively fix large amounts of carbon compared to smaller trees. At the extreme, a single big tree can add the same amount of carbon to the forest within a year as is contained in an entire mid-sized tree. The apparent paradoxes of individual tree growth increasing with tree size despite declining leaf level and stand level productivity can be explained respectively by increases in a tree's total leaf area that outpace declines in productivity per unit of leaf area and among other factors age-related reductions in population density. Other results resolve conflicting assumptions about the nature of tree growth inform efforts to understand and model forest carbon dynamics. That's too much to read. Um, <laughs> so the question here, or the, what they, they state here in particular, is that it seems to me that we ought to be trying to very determinedly grow trees uh, to let them be very old and have lots of them. And the question that I would ask for the state forest, right, for the public lands, is um, if there is so much private forestry, p- private logging, and all of that industry is happening there. Who is going to grow old trees? You know, who is going to protect and help this process uh, as we as we enter into a, a very troubled age of uh, changing climate? Reality is, whether it's public land or private land, the forest is aging pretty quickly. And some of our data right now is suggesting that mortality is really starting to accelerate. So I got to go back to this issue of these trees can grow to a certain point and they're going to age out and and that's going to be species dependent so uh, is it going to be private lands or public lands to your question uh, I, I don't think there's a right answer to that because again we don't control the when those trees age out and die but when they age out then they die you could take them versus going in and cutting them when you define them as mature right well if you're looking at it from a purely carbon perspective if you cut them before they die and you put them into wood products that's got a hundred year life expectancy you've actually sequestered quite a bit of carbon and then you've got a new forest coming on right behind it so you're managing for a new forest to then take over where that that sequestration right um, so this again is a management that would uh, grow at a, a what, like particular age cycles. So you're you're cutting and hoping that you grow t- to every 20 years to have the ability to sort of rotate and cycle in and out of uh, out of timber. Yeah, uh, on our system, and it's a little bit longer than it is on the private sector side. We're l- looking at re-entering a stand every 20 years, knowing that our inventory data tells us that we can cut at a level and in 20 years that forest will be back at that level again so we've actually extracted that that woody biomass that carbon some of it's been used in long-term products some of it will cycle back into the system very quickly if it's a paper or uh, say a pallet or something like that but usually if it ends up in furniture moldings it's got a long life history then let me ask a question too. This one's more uh, again a more of a political question. I, I had seen also where there were a couple of um, a couple of bills uh, issued, uh, Senate Bill 398, uh, which was a state wilderness bill uh, requiring the Department of Natural Resources to undertake a comprehensive review of all state public lands and to recommend tracts of land that meet certain conditions for designation by the General Assembly as state wilderness areas. Um, I understand that this was something that the DNR uh, and the Division of Forestry was against. Is that correct? Uh, we don't necessarily take positions on bills, so to speak. I mean, it's, it's the General Assembly's um, 
prerogative to put those bills forward. But we pointed out to folks is that if you look at the amount of state ownership and federal ownership and how much of that forest land is never going to be managed, harvested, almost half of that land is off limits to harvesting. So you look at like, let's take state parks. Mm -hmm. State parks may have 60,000 acres. Well, by statute, state parks doesn't harvest timber. Nature preserves. So I can go on and on, but there's a lot of land out there that's off limits, and unless the, the statutes are changed, will be off limits to timber management. Okay, so uh, these bills in particular, House Bill 1179 and Senate Bill 398, as I just mentioned, that want there to be um, uh, sort of a backcountry prevention. <laughs> is is there a difference there in that sense? or uh, The backcountry area is, is a controversy that you obviously picked up on, and mm -hmm. it was uh, sort of put into play in the uh, early 80s, and it was to look like a federal wilderness area. Mm -hmm. But in Indiana, as... Uh, that was drafted, there would be recreation, there would be uh, uh, camping without designated camping sites, and there would be timber management, but it would be single tree selection. Right, so uh, I think this was in 81 or something correct. like that with, um, I guess at the time it was James Ridner. Ridner, uh, correct. Ridner, thank you. Uh, and even so much as that uh, horses aren't permitted in these wilderness areas. Correct. Um, so what's the, the position on, on these sort of primitive hiking areas and things of that nature? There is quite a bit of, of, of this kind of interest in this town as well, but in general that the, a lot of forest management is about providing these, these, the capability to, to have a, um, a wilderness experience, let's say. Again, we go back and we look at those areas. Th th that's a, a designation on a map. Mm -hmm. It really doesn't speak to what's about what's in the forest. And we can show you areas in our forest that are more older, have a different kind of feel, but it was a piece of political decision back then that these areas would be sort of given a name. Oh, okay. So it was a, a decision based on what then? What kind of political decision was that at the time? Um, yeah, at that time, that's when the wilderness bill was going through and there was a lot of discussion, well, should the state have one? And this was the closest that people thought we should go to that kind of habitat. Okay. Um, so it, do you think that it is the state's, uh, the ability for the state to, to focus on some of these issues in terms of uh, environmental impacts like the carbon sequestration? Is that something that you look to, to think about or you've been working on trying to understand what you could do as a state forester? We're, we're looking at, you know, one of the things we have a tree planting initiative right now to us if the forest stays in forest, we're always going to be sequestering carbon. So really for us, it's about how do you get more carbon sequestered by land use change. So we've actually put a program in with a private donation from, from a private benefactor who's actually helping us acquire land and plant more trees. And that we do 10 to 20, 30 acres every year since we started the program. So, and then when we get ag land and our purchases, we try and convert those sites back to forests, forest when it makes sense. Do you have a sense that most of what you do in as a forester is somewhat experimental? Um, we rely on the universities for a, a lot of the data that we use to, to drive our system. Uh, we do a little bit of it ourselves, especially when it comes to monitoring. Uh, but we, we really rely, and we want the independent voice. So that's why we set up the Harwood Ecosystems Experiment, which is a 100-year experiment, again, to make sure that people 
didn't think the Division of Forestry was forcing the system. We wanted outside folks to look at options and then give us the feedback. All right. Well, that's all the time we have tonight. So thanks very much, John Sievert. Uh, this has uh, been Interchange. Uh, again, our thanks uh, to John Sievert, Indiana State Forester, for joining us tonight to speak about logging in our state forest lands and the management of these lands by his office. Uh, join us next week when we take a look at the movement called Moral Mondays, protests that began in North Carolina and have spread to several other states, including Indiana. The protests are characterized by engaging in civil disobedience obedience by entering the state legislature building and then being peacefully arrested. The movement protests many wide-ranging wide issues under the blanket of unfair treatment, discrimination, and adverse effects of government legislation on citizens. That's next week on Interchange on WFHB. Thanks for listening tonight. Our board engineer is Jonathan Richards, Richardson. He was assisted tonight by Carissa Barrett. Executive producer is Allison Bektesh. Our theme music is by Jamil Effiam. I'm Doug Storm, and this has been Interchange. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on WFHB. Real people. Real issues. This is your forum. This is Interchange. Written and produced entirely by volunteers working in the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Interchange fosters unfiltered open dialogue on the people, issues, and events impacting life in South Central Indiana and beyond. Comments, suggestions, and program ideas may be sent directly to the Interchange staff. The email address is news at wfhb.org. That address once again is news at wfhb.org.